Well, Jay, it's hard to believe we've done 34 episodes now on the game plan, and I'm really excited about this one. We're wrapping up season one with a little bit of a greatest hits episode. It's kind of crazy to think, Tim, there were so many times where we didn't know we were going to make it to 35, but here we are. We've got some big plans for season two, but I think before we get into that, why don't we do our greatest hits, our, our favorite moments from season one, then we can wrap up with a couple of takeaways that we've had now doing this show for close to six months and maybe some reflections for what we'd like to see going forward. How's that sound? Yeah, so for listeners, new or old, I think you'll really appreciate this. We cherry-picked some of our favorite moments. I'm going to kick things off. Jay, I'm not sure if you're expecting this, but a little hidden gem we had this season was a reference to our current president, Donald Trump. And it was oh my it God. was not political. It was not a political reference, uh, believe it or not. But I'm talking about episode 18, where we were speaking with U.S. hockey legend and four-time Olympic gold medalist, Angela Ruggiero, and she talks about the time she had an opportunity to potentially work for our current president. Let's roll the tape. And I have to ask this, we can cut this if you want, but you wouldn't have told yourself to take the job offer from Trump after The Apprentice in 2006? <laughs> no, you know what's crazy with that? My Even my father told me to take that job. Everyone was like, you're crazy not to work for Trump. He wanted me to work with his kids downtown New York. This is before he's running for president. And so, and I actually went to high school with Ivanka. So I already knew her from, from my Chote Rosemary Home, our prep school. So I had all, you know, all the cards are laid out. I'd be making a boatload of money, blah, blah, blah. And, and I looked at all of his properties. I said, well, maybe the golf, maybe I could run one of his golf, you know, courses, or he had a foundation. I'm sure you've heard about the foundation, how that wasn't um, invested in properly, but but I had to follow like my heart and by following my heart, I'm super proud of this. I went back to my fourth Olympics. I got elected on the IOC. It opened up a million different doors. I mean, I was at the Prince of Monaco's wedding. Who's an IOC member. Like I've done like <laughs> insane things. I was, you know, I go to Buckingham palace and meet the queen and I'm, you know, I've been able to go back to business school. And, and I just, I look back at that one decision um, when the world was telling me go work for this guy named Donald Trump, because he's got a flashy name, he's going to pay a lot of money. And I was like, no, I need to play hockey one more Olympics. Anyway, so follow your heart is my advice. And, and don't follow the money. The money will come, though. Believe me. <laughs> wow. I can't believe you came out of the gate swinging with that one, Tim. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was, that was a crazy story. And it just kind of makes me feel like, you know, the, the lesson there is... As an entrepreneur, you have to march to the beat of your own drum. You have to zig while everybody else zags or vice versa. And with Angela, she had a very clear idea of what she wanted to do. And, you know, again, you can always tell that revisionist history of, oh, this thing might have happened if that thing happened. But it seems like she's pretty happy she went back. She's pretty happy that she got to play in the Olympics one more time. And all the great things that have happened to her since started with her turning down a job offer that uh, everybody told her she should take. I just think it's funny because a lot of the things she mentioned that she ended up doing as part of her role with the IOC, she may have low-key also been able to do had she worked for Trump and had been part of this administration or something, but I think she's happy with the path that she took. Yeah. So let's go on to our next clip. Jay, what do you got for me? All right. So I don't know if you're expecting this one, but this was one from one of our earliest episodes with broadcaster, podcaster, and all-around personality, Mark Schlereth. 
And Mark <laughs> told a phenomenal story that I don't think he's told anywhere else. So I already I want, know where no, you're going with this. <laughs> I want to make sure that our listeners hear this one. So, uh, so ultimately, you recovered. Yeah. Yeah. And was that that was completely on your own? Um, or did, yeah, you know, was, were there advancements just, from the doctors you worked with? Or no, it was just over time. You know, now they do a lot of blood transfusions for it, and yeah. you know, they treat you you with like a steroidal, you know, yeah. kind of concoction. And but then they didn't, and I just recovered over time. But you know, I, I went back to training camp in 1994 for the Redskins. And I still had, you know, several toes that were still numb. Oh, wow. um, I hadn't, you know, it had dissipated, it, you know, it creeped down. But I remember weighing in and I was, I was 268. Mm. And so I was like, man, I can't weigh in at 268. I mean, they're just going to go, they're going to go ballistic. So I weighed in, I got a uh, 10 pound weight and uh, I you know, <laughs> put it. I put it in my pants, oh in my, my shorts, <laughs> so that it was just in my jock really? strap. You know, like a little 10-pound plate and weighed in, so it was 278. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I haven't gained all my weight back, but I'm on my way back. You know? <laughs> oh, and my like, God. Well, like, like, by late November, December, I started playing really well again. And I started, you know, feeling better again. And I started gaining my strength back. And I gained, the, you know, my weight back. I was back legitimately in the 280s, you know, high 280s. Mm -hmm. And so... At that point, I started playing really well, which was fortunate because it was right before free agency. And then, and then, uh, you know, it gave me an opportunity to go into free agency in in '95. And although I did, I hit free agency. I failed the physical in Chicago. I failed the physical in Atlanta. And I failed the physical in in Indianapolis. But Mike Shanahan and I owe him a debt of gratitude. He basically just said, "Hey, this guy's going to pass regardless of what shows up on his physical." So. So that's how I ended up with the Broncos. I just it. failed physicals all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at first it was, you know, very serious, right? Here he is talking about a disease that he had, how it sidetracked his whole career. And then out of nowhere, he pulls this crazy story. I think looking back at it, you know, it's, it's nice that he can have a laugh about it, but pretty serious at the time. I know, I know this show is so much about what guests are doing off the court, but I think in this case, why this story sticks out to me is like just the perseverance that he had and the perseverance that you have to have as an athlete. And we hear it from a lot of our guests where they're just like, yeah, you just try to get better every day. You just try to pick up and learn and be coachable and sort of all of those things that transfer over to being a really good entrepreneur, being a really good personality, which he is, you know, in, in podcasting and media. Mark just sort of had that mentality of like, yeah, I'm going to make my way back. I'm going to get better. And he he was ready to do whatever it took to, to get there up to and including hiding weights inside of his jockstrap. Yeah, certainly a whatever it takes kind of story. So, well, switching gears a bit, I don't think we could talk about this first season of the game plan without acknowledging all of the things that are going on in the world between a global pandemic, the social justice movement, and something that's very real that I think people have forgotten until recently because of what's going on with the California wildfires, which is climate change. And we brought Chris Dickerson, former Major League Baseball player and now CEO of Players for the Planet on. This was right after the NBA players decided to strike during the playoffs. The Bucks team had stepped out of a game. And then as a result, there was a domino effect where other teams stepped out as well. And there's no doubt this was our most raw and deep interview. 
So let's roll the tape. I mean, I grew up in Southern California and I mean, our state is on fire again. You know, it's cra- it's just, it's crazy. This, the state is on fire again. You know, the snowpack gets worse and worse every year. It's more unpredictable. You know, I've been, I've been sick. I've seen friends get really sick in the ocean from, from the, just the irresponsibility of the runoff in, in local beachside communities and developments. I've been on field trips to the mountains and I understand what we're doing to these natural habitats. Like we're still shooting mountain lions at, we've been tracking for 20 years and they're just keep falling off because we just feel like this need that they have no right to this natural ecosystem that is, that is earth. And when they, whenever we feel threatened by what is naturally supposed to do what they're supposed to do, we basically shoot them down. It's really difficult. You know, it's really tough. I feel like I all in it. It's honestly to the point where, you remember the matrix when I forget the name of the character, but when he was basically trying to get out of the matrix and he's sitting there and he's like, you know, I just, ignorance is bliss. And he takes a sip of his wine. And it's just like, sometimes you're just better off not knowing. And the more that I've dived into, the more research I've done, like reading through the climate report was like one of the most depressing things I've ever done. Going to world oceans week and sitting through a two hour documentary on what's happening to the albatross and you know how it's just basically being killed off by plastic and then hearing the world leaders um in these agricultural set sectors talk about where how what the state of the oceans and what the state of their fishing markets looks like seeing the the tension and the despair in the in the body language and people at the un and this isn't like a backyard you know neighborhood you know, environmental watch group. These are, these are the brightest minds that in the world and they're cringing in their seats. So it's, so it's difficult to hold your shit together when, you know, you have, you know, you have kids and your friends have kids and, you know, you know, like the world is going to be completely different. They're not going to have, what we have. And th- that's the most disheartening part. Just not only just, you know, having a biracial daughter, not understanding just that part of it, but understanding that a lot of these animals that you love that you see on TV aren't going to be <laughs> fucking tough talk conversations to have with little kids. You sh- shouldn't, we shouldn't have to have to have, to have them. You know, that's why I started Players for the Planet. Yeah, Tim, you know, the only thing you can say there is it's it's just amazing to, to see and hear how much Chris cares and that this isn't some side project or hobby. Or, you know, you know, sometimes I think when athletes get involved in causes, people think that it's a PR thing. And like, this is his thing, man. He is in it. He cares about it. He champions it. And just how much he understands about the damage that has been done, how environmental justice and social justice are intertwined and how it affects poor communities and minority communities. And it weighs on him. And that he was able to just share that so openly with us and kind of trust us with that story. Um, yeah, I know it was a recent episode, but, but it definitely is one that, that still rings out in my mind. Yeah, certainly worth going back to for any of our listeners who are still catching up on the game plan. Chris is such a great example of an athlete using their platform 
and actually bringing together the platform of other maybe more well-known athletes to do something incredible, which is what he's done with Players for the Planet. So really thankful Chris joined us and especially thankful for how open he was willing to be with us. Well, Tim, in the lens of those kinds of conversations, you know, one of the conversations that I think we don't have enough on this show, and I think you and I have have sort of talked about how we get to have it a little bit more, is around the idea that a lot of our guests are black, a lot of our guests come from experiences that they have faced in their lives that you and I just don't know, and how do we get to have those openly? And one of our guests that I think challenged us to think in that lens was Michael Red, who is a former NBA All-Star and gold medalist, and now with the work that he's doing at 22 Ventures, challenged us. So there has been a lot of conversation amongst the tech and venture community over the last couple of weeks on what that industry could be doing to better empower black and brown founders, minority founders in the ecosystem. You know, we hear what you're doing, we love what you're doing, but how can the rest of the industry catch up to that and what can they do to help bridge that gap as well? Care. Care. Hmm. Care enough to hire. Care enough to forfeit power and authority. Care enough to invest. Racism is not a nascent thing to our culture. (laughs) It's been around for 450 years. You know, there's been this notion of integration, right? Integration. Like integration has been like the aim and goal of America forever. Well, it's not an aim and it's not a goal. It's a fact. It's a fact that has been received, refused to be received and embraced. So we've got to transition it from being a goal and an aim to actually being awakened to that. It's a fact. We've got to be able to empower our minorities. And we've got to be able to have minorities at a powerful position because the lens begins to be widened and it becomes expanded. And then you'll see change. I was around. I was 12 years old when Ronnie King was beaten. I was around. It's been 30 years. It's the same cycle, right? And when you look at it from an economic standpoint, again, I mentioned earlier, whoever has the institutional power controls the narrative. And there's over 2,000 billionaires in the world today. There's only four African-American billionaires. David Stewart, Robert Smith, Vista Equities, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan. Until that gap shrinks, (laughs) we're going to continue to see this cycle happen. Because with diversity at the top, there's more of an empathy in our distressed neighborhoods on education, on access and opportunity. So that's my soapbox, but I, I believe that's where we can start. Yeah, hearing Michael's voice again and the things he had to say, you can just feel it. You can feel how much this isn't just a one-off new thing for him. It's something he's dealt with his whole life, and it's something that he wants to make monumental generational change in a way that, is so much bigger than his basketball career. And I really admire that. I admire his aspiration. And I admire his focus. And I admire his authenticity in his effort. I think one of the, the best things about the show 
for me personally is just the insightfulness and reflectiveness that we hear from our guests. And, you know, when you grow up and, and you know, you're a Milwaukee guy, you were watching Michael Redd and, and you sort of see him as this hero on the court. And to hear him talk this way, I mean, I'll put it like he's he's a hero for me now with the work that he is doing. And like to just be inspired in that way, you realize like athlete or no, this is somebody that has a mission, has a, has a cause. And, um, you know, he's he's going to go out and accomplish it. And, and we're excited to support him as he does that. Yeah. And I'm thankful that we're able to have these types of conversations. And we talked about it in some of these episodes, how. They're not easy conversations for us to have. Admittedly, we're just trying to learn. So we've asked that our listeners be patient with us and learn with us. And we just want to build the game plan in a way that can present those every, every kind of issue and really help us learn, help our audience learn. And that's really, really our goal. But on a lighter note, and to your point about, you know, talking to some of our maybe childhood heroes so to speak as a lifelong Packers fan and a big advocate for wine or I at least enjoy drinking wine uh, <laughs> I had a lot of fun in our conversation with Super Bowl champion and founder of the wine MVP Will Blackman he tells us about an interesting time where he first started getting into wine and how that played out so every away game didn't matter the magnitude of the game, all the defensive backs, we will all go out to dinner. And Charles would pick the restaurant, send the text like, hey, meet everybody meet here, leave your suits on, we're going to go to a really nice place. So every weekend we did. And we played Minnesota, I think it was 2008. And we, we you know, did our usual fine dining, good wine. And then we just kept having more wine. And because I guess we had a, it was a short trip. So, you know, to Minnesota from Wisconsin. So we got there early enough time before we had to go back for meeting. So we, we had so much wine that night. It was just crazy. And then it got to the point where I remember when we were almost done, we heard music and the waitress was like, yeah, this, this actually is a huge lounge upstairs. We were hmm. like, we looked at our watches. We were like, all right, we still got like another half hour. So <laughs> we, we all, the defensive backs went upstairs and where it was me, Charles Woodson, Tremont Williams, Nick Collins, Patrick Lee. Okay. I think that was that was pretty much it. We all went upstairs and we got more wine. And then we saw uh Troy Aikman and and Joe Buck. Okay. They were there too. And they came by and gave him a glass. And so <laughs> we're over there living it like we have nothing going on tonight or tomorrow. So then I remember we get back to the to our hotel and I was like, man, I looked in the mirror and I was just glossy eyed. Yeah, and was like, damn, dude. And we have a noon. I think it was a, or I think I think it was it was a primetime game. And I was like, damn, dude. Like I don't know what I'm gonna do tomorrow. So I get up the next day, and I feel like absolute trash. And I, I'm talking to I'm talking to Charles, talking to all the Charles is fine, but Tremont knew he wasn't feeling well, and Nick yeah. Collins. And so we get into the game. You know, drilling kicks in, warmed up, hydrate. Then immediately, Charles Woodson gets a pick. Oh wow! You know, and we're like, no, but we're like, that's Charles. Of course, of course, he's gonna pick. Like this, I mean, there was, that was nothing new. He was picking stuff off every week. And then, I think a quarter later, Tremont gets a pick, and I was like, oh, dude, like, 
like that was a nice jump. You know, he had a lot of momentum that season. I think he yep. got a contract the next year. Okay. And then third quarter, Nick Collins had a pick six. No way. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, I'm like, what is going on right now? <laughs> yeah, seriously. What was in that line? No, no. But I'm like, damn, that's crazy. No, like all, all three, so <laughs> far, better. everybody did something, you know? And then I'm like, well, shoot, like I got to do something now, you know? And, and I go back and uh, I receive a punt and I take it to the house too. Damn. So then we're on the sideline, like losing our minds. Like, yo, we, we got to go <laughs> every night. <laughs> seriously. So I said it gets better. I remember that game. Wow, man. What a story. And and to hear, like, I mean, not just Will, but obviously Charles Woodson has now gotten into doing his own wines and hopefully we'll have him on the show sometime. But to also hear that, you know, he's a guest that took a passion of his and turned it into a business with, with the wine MVP. And he's kind of become the NFL wine guy where he's helping other players out and making sure like when Saquon needs something in his cellar, like he's helping him get stocked. The really cool thing is like, demystifying the idea of, hey, if you're an athlete that wants to be a, a startup founder or you want to share your passion, like it doesn't have to be this thing, oh, you have to understand social apps and building a technology. Like, no, you you have a passion, you have a platform, and you can turn that into a business to share with people even after you're done playing football. So that was the coolest takeaway. I mean, I love the parts where he was talking about what he looks for in a wine and how he's getting his W set and, you know, he's learning how to be a Psalm. But like, that was just a really, really cool story. Yeah. And we'll talk more about the humility a lot of our guests have had to have in getting into these different interests. We'll talk about that and kind of some of our overall season takeaways. But you can tell with Will, even now, he doesn't pretend to be the smartest wine person in the world or, you know, ha have this like deep understanding that is is unachievable by anyone else it's actually quite the opposite and i think that's why he's having so much success in what he's doing in the wine business although i will say for the record that the packers actually lost that game where <laughs> the defense dominated and he had a punt returned I, I think that was pretty funny when we went back and he mentioned that that is that is a rough one man well anyway so we'll close our our best of with one of my favorite stories from megan klingenberg world champion and co-founder of re-inc wow i love that so it sounds like defining what RE stands for and understanding who you were making this for came naturally. But where did you even begin as it related to building out the supply chain, including everything from product design to material sourcing to manufacturing and fulfillment? Oh, man, we, we really had some interesting roadblocks at the beginning, <laughs> as every startup does, right? Like, yeah. It's just hard. It's just so hard when you're new and you're trying to figure it out and you're leaning on people that you hope you can trust, but you don't know if you can trust. So it's, it's, I mean, we did not do a perfect job of it at the beginning and we're certainly not doing a perfect job of it right now. We want to keep getting better and make better clothes that fit better and feel better and, and are better for the world. So it was really difficult at first. I don't think we really hit the mark that we wanted to. I think we fell short with our with our first line. And that's really hard to say because we're really proud of it. We're really proud of what we did in a really short amount of time. But we also knew that, hey, if this was soccer, that wouldn't be good enough. And for right. us, we have this bar that's not just here. Like good enough is not good enough for us, right? Our bar is up here. We want to be excellent. And so that means... You know, 
always talking about the fit, always talking about things that went wrong with the th- with the previous line. How can we make that better? How can we design it better? What d- materials can we use better? Was fulfillment good enough? Was customer service good enough? And we'll go through every aspect of the customer experience, whether that is, you know, the website all the way down to returns. And we'll just be like, hey, we heard from people online that this wasn't good enough. And even if it's maybe just one or two comments, we do our best to try and fix it. How cool is it that here we have a World Cup champion, one of the most recognizable female athletes in the world, and she's sharing her story about doubt, about the grind, and also just being so open and honest about it. I mean, she could have just as easily said, no, everything's been perfect from the start. Like, we always had it figured out. No problem. We we went into this with an idea, and we executed it perfectly. But just her willingness to share, I mean, it speaks to what a genuine person Megan is and why she's one of my favorite all-time guests that we've had on this show. But it's also the reason I think we do the game plan. Yeah, it it reminds me, and I think hopefully reminds us as investors, that like a startup is a journey, not a destination. And so... In that, you kind of have to realize that the more honest you are with yourself about like, hey, when things aren't going well, okay, let's solve it. Like, you don't you don't come in to building a startup with every problem solved. That's not what this is. And that's not what building a business is. For Megan, it was like, I have this idea. I know that I want to make it a reality. That's enough. And now okay, I have one problem in front of me. How do I get the rights? I'm going to solve that problem. Oh, I need to get you know my teammates on board. Great. I need to figure out what roles my teammates are going to have. I'll figure that out too. And so with her and her co-founders, all of whom are world champions, all of whom have these amazing platforms, for them to come together and say, we believe in this. We believe that there's a company unlike any other that we can build. And that's enough. I think that's like the cool thing. That's like the reminder. It's like, yeah, you don't have to have everything figured out on day one as long as you have the passion to keep going and figure it out sometime soon. Yeah, and I actually think that's a good segue into this next segment. It was a lot of fun looking back at those clips. I'd recommend anyone listening to this definitely go back and check out some of those full episodes if you enjoyed any of the clips we just highlighted. But one thing we don't get to talk about enough on the game plan is our role as investors and how often we interact with entrepreneurs. And that's really why we wanted to start the game plan was to shine a light on athletes, both as investors and entrepreneurs. So in that vein, I thought it would be a fun segment to get into just kind of our takeaways from the season, the things that we maybe didn't see coming, but we kept hearing again and again from the different guests we had or specific highlights of the advice that our guests had that we really want to make sure we kind of reiterate with our own perspective. Yeah. Why don't we start with some of the conversations that we had about the investment approach that these athletes took? So for me, that was, I think, an interesting learning where, you know, you're talking to guys that have made millions of dollars in their careers and they're very public. And so they have a lot of access to really interesting deals. But whether it was one of our first guests, Derek Morgan, or our most recent guest, Matthew Delvadova, it was interesting to hear very similar advice, which was start with smaller checks. What did you think about that? It's funny because I, in some ways, had a similar experience as I started to enter into investing. What you want early on when you're doing direct investing is experience. Obviously, you want 
to make an incredible return. Like that's why you should, that's the only reason you should invest, right? (laughs) Just to be clear. However, these athletes are in some ways pursuing it as just something they're interested in. And so if that's the objective for them or secondary objective beyond making a return, the more you can just get reps early on and get exposure and understand how the deal process works, the conversations you need to have with the founder, the things you need to be asking for, what term sheets look like, how the process of actually, like administrative things like wiring the money and then tracking it and taxes and accounting, like we've talked about this stuff before, but you can gain all of that experience with smaller checks and the benefit of that experience after having done that for two or three or four years is now you can go out and make a bigger bet, have a more clearly defined strategy of, okay, this is exactly what I want to get into. Or, ah, now I see that it really does take seven to 10 years for these companies to materialize. I didn't realize that. I thought this was a for sure thing, like overnight winner. So I loved hearing that. I wish, you know, I could have told these athletes that (laughs) earlier, but hopefully... Through this show, we'll have some athletes listening that maybe pick up on that advice. Yeah, it's one of those things about investing that I think every young venture capitalist learns, which is you cannot escape the power law. That's just how it works. 65% of companies don't return the initial capital. 25 will return between 1 and 5x. And then it's the ones beyond that. So what are we left at? Like less than 10% that you're actually making most of your return on. So yeah, the more bets you get to place the more you get to spread the risk around, the more the portfolio theory works in your favor. While we're on the topic of athletes as investors and given all the conversations we've had, what's your kind of takeaway? Should the athletes, and we're generalizing, so we can pull specific examples if we want, but is this something athletes should continue to pursue directly or should they look to gain exposure, let's say through a fund, either as an LP or maybe some deeper, more strategic type partnership? So I think it's worthwhile for athletes to consider venture capital as part of their portfolio theory, right? So maybe they're in stocks and bonds and they have a manager that manages that. They are in real estate. They have a manager that probably takes care of that. Like that's the stuff that some folks are really interested in. Pat Connington's really interested in. So he's managing his own real estate stuff. But maybe there are other guys that don't want to do that and they want to hire Pat to do it. When it comes to venture capital, you know, the thing is like, All these guys grew up with social media and technology. All these guys grew up in the age of, you know, online angel syndicates and the social network and venture capital. This is stuff that they're interested in. So to me, it's like, you know, why hand that off to somebody else? Why be a passive LP when this is something you're actually interested in and passionate about? Should 100% of your money be in there? No, absolutely not, right? But if you are going to take an active role, then really do take an active role. I mean, Matthew Delvadova talked to us about how he spends time with the founders themselves. Baron Davis has shared the same thing where he really gets in on what makes this company unique. Why, why is he the best person to invest in it? Like those are the kind of questions that, yeah, I think athletes should get involved in. And then most importantly, learn how to say no. Because most of the stuff you're going to get pitched as an athlete is probably going to be stuff that you don't want to do. And then maybe it's going to be like sports team related or whatever it is learn how to let people down, learn how to say no, that's going to serve you the best when you're an athlete investor. Yeah, I think it was the junkyard dog, Jerome Williams, that had 
like a specific strategy on how to say no. But we heard that from from other guests as well. That was that was fun. So another takeaway that I have from the season and our guests that I really want to hit on is humility and authenticity. You could see it with our guests kind of come through. I, I mean, I guess that's the whole idea of humility is you're not actually talking about how humble you are. It just kind of comes through, right? But like Stuart Bradley, for example, NFL linebacker, and then he takes a job as an analyst at Goldman Sachs working like 80 hour weeks or seven, you know, I'm probably exaggerating, but like really hard work weeks. And like, no, he was, he was in the TMT group. He you know, was working at yeah, least yeah. 80 hours a week. He's banging a keyboard, like punching in Excel, like work, working with 22, 23, like a guy that I know that I've worked with was like 23 and Stuart's like 32 at the desk and they're working together. And he even admitted, I probably wouldn't have had that opportunity to work at one of the top investment banks in the world if I didn't have the NFL pedigree or piece. And it, that's why it was important for him to make that decision quickly when he realized his football career was over. So it's the stories like that, that I was just kind of like blown away from, but I was like, yes, we need more of that. Like if you want to be successful as successful off the field as you were on it, you really need to embrace like, okay, I got to roll up my sleeves and I got to do what everyone else is doing. And I got to do it to another level. Cause they're all going to, no one's going to take me seriously because they all know me as the athlete. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember from some of our guests is that they know how to handle setbacks because, you know, when you're going to play a sport like football or really any sport, you're going to have setbacks. Injuries are a part of life. Losses are a part of life. And so in some way, you have that level of humility that you just you have to have because you know that there are times when even with best of intentions and best of preparations, things are not going to go your way. And what am I describing? I'm describing the startup journey. That's that's exactly right. what it is. And so when you have like Haley Rosen joins us and talks to us about like getting a media company going in the midst of a global pandemic or Megan Klingenberg, as we shared earlier, talks about all the challenges they had just getting an apparel line stood up and all the mistakes that they made. Or even Dahani Jones. Dahani shares his story with Tackles the Globe and like not knowing how to make a TV show and figuring right. out on the fly, you have to come in from a learner's mindset and you have to come in from the mindset of like, yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't know anything. Tell me. Right. And, and sometimes I think, you know, a lot of these athletes, like they are a lot more read in than I think folks give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And we, hopefully we get to share that on the show, but sometimes you do get to like play innocent and say, yeah, I, I don't know. Please, Mr. Venture Capitalist, explain to me how this stuff works, <laughs> right? And and, yeah. and the smartest ones use that to their advantage. And then when we get to have them on the show, we hear that like, oh, they're they're a lot more read into this stuff than, than right. most people realize. You also reminded me, I forget exactly who it was, but when we talk to baseball players, they're like, three out of 10, Hall of Fame, like the Hall of Fame <laughs> career, right? So it, it is, there is just that mental fortitude that they've obviously not just built up, but they, you know, almost like a predisposition towards that because of their success on the field. Yeah. What did you take away from just in terms of like our journey doing this show? We had a lot of conversations early on about this like narrative of the broke athlete. And I'm curious how your perspective on that has shifted over the last six months. Yeah. That term broke athlete was something I just took at face value. And that's on me for not actually pressure testing, you know, any of the, as Eric Winston, former NFLPA president and guest on our show 
was saying, he's like, find me the, find me the data because it's not, it's not accurate or it's not out there. It doesn't exist. It's not true. And he would know because as in that role, he had to structure a lot to help ensure the safety and protection of retired NFL players. So yeah, it changed tremendously for me. And I hope that in learning on my own that also some of our listeners were also able to see that. I think the other thing that maybe I didn't fully appreciate, because I've gone through my own journey in this conversation. I remember like four or five years ago when I was leaving the NFL, I was thinking, oh, these guys, it's like steakhouses, like they shouldn't be getting involved. And I personally, as I've talked to more of these athletes and, and gotten to know them, realized like, you know, a lot of this broke athlete narrative has been weaponized. And it's been weaponized by business managers and money managers. Yeah, like who's writing and, the articles? Right? Like who's <laughs> actually benefiting from the idea of saying, you who excelled at one career cannot excel at this other career, cannot spend the time to get there. Well, because they're going to benefit off of the management fees that you right. get them, right? So we're not we're not saying we're not saying everybody yeah, give does your money that. to yeah. me because you can't be trusted with it. I'm not saying everybody does that, Tim. But what I am saying is that I've become a lot more wary of when people use the dumb jock can't invest, you know, narrative. Yeah. I, I it puts me a little bit on edge because from the 35 episodes that we've done on this show what we know to be true is that there are plenty of guests out there, plenty of athletes out there that defy that. Mm -hmm. And sample size bias says they can't all be on our show. So clearly there's so many more of them that are out there that are thinking about this in a much smarter way. And as we've said, are going about investing in a way that protects them and creates you know, generational wealth and, and security for their uh, families. You know, another very real conversation we had that's tangential to this topic. And I don't know, maybe this will come off as virtue signaling, but I'm just going to say it anyway. When we spoke to Angela Ruggiero, who is literally you know, the Hall of Fame of hockey, gold medal, multiple gold medalists, does, like from a, just a pure quantitative standpoint, has done anything you could possibly imagine to be the top, one of the top all-time hockey players, not just female, like all-time hockey players. And yet like, she never made millions of dollars from any of that. And so I'm hopeful and excited in like our conversation with Haley Rosen, who started a publication to address that specifically just women's sports. And I loved what she had to say, which was like, this isn't like a social good exercise. Like women's sports are rad. And I'm like, you know what? maybe there's something to that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a typical sports fan. Oh, you know, like blue blood sports, NFL, you know, basketball, NBA, whatever. But like ever since we had that conversation with her and like the NWSL came back and we're playing, like, I was like, yeah, this, this stuff's pretty rad. And so I hope, you know, it's early, but like, I hope that it's true and can come to fruition that by drawing more attention to women's sports, they can start to make, the kind of money that can set them up, right? And, yeah. you know, Megan Klingenberg, another example of that, because we've seen, and, and through talking to her too, like all the things the U.S. women's national team has had to do to say like, by the way, we're driving way more media interest in soccer. We're getting way more attention. And like, we're not getting paid, this, much less the same. Like, we should be making more. So 
I don't know. Again, maybe that's just seen as virtue signaling, but I thought it was worth mentioning because it's something that came up in in multiple conversations we had and just something that I've been thinking about since doing this show. Look, we we wouldn't be good at our jobs as investors if we weren't challenging our own biases. And so, you know, look, to hear you say that, I don't think it's virtue signaling at all. I do think that we learn as we get new information. And I think the fact that we get to hear it firsthand from somebody who is so passionate about what she is building or what any of our guests are building, it should give us a moment to reflect and say, yeah, maybe I have been thinking about it in one way. So I guess why don't we use that as a as a good place to close? You know, beyond I think our takeaways from our guests, we've also been putting together and producing a show for almost six months. Give me some of your reflections and maybe some of your hopes as we go into season two. Invest in a high quality microphone. That was that was a good learning early on. <laughs> uh, look, no, there's obviously plenty of things that you and I talk at length about off mic that I'm not going to bore our listeners with, but I am really, really excited for season two. I think anyone who's listened to the show over the course of the season would agree that we've gotten more refined as the season's gone on, have uh, done our best to ask you know deeper, more meaningful questions. We're, we have some really exciting guests lined up and uh, you know can't quite hit on it yet, but looking forward to maybe some bigger things in season two. Yeah, I think for me, Tim, the most exciting thing about this is like, we didn't know what this was going to be when we started, right? And I think you and I joke about this a lot is like, oh, we said, okay, 10 episodes, it'll be season one, we'll figure out what we want to do. Here we are three times that length. And I think, you know, some of our, our listeners, have, if they follow us on Twitter, have probably heard the story, but like, we thought this was going to be done when COVID happened. And we were going from recording live together in downtown New York to you know, I was recording from a supply closet for a couple of weeks <laughs> until I had my whole setup ready. So what I, what I will say is like, the biggest learning for me in this is it just gave me a tremendous amount of respect for podcasters, for content creators, for people that just put out quality content with consistency. It's tough, man. And the fact that we've been able to build the listenership that we have, that we have Folks that come back episode after episode, they DM us, they share their thoughts, they reach out and say, hey, I've got a startup I'm working on that I think this guest would love to hear about. That's something I'm, I'm hoping to carry forward in the season two, that we make this not just about the episodes and about the content that we put out, but we also make it about the connection that we can hopefully provide our audience to our guests. And there's probably some cool things that we can do there. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about those soon as well. Totally. I think that's a great place to wrap. And it's also a good reminder for our listeners, especially if you've gotten this far into the recap episode. Thank you for, for making it with us. We love hearing from you guys and your encouragement is what keeps us going. We'd love ideas that you have, whether it's for the questions we could ask or the type of guests we could have. So please keep that stuff coming. Best way to reach us is through Twitter, or you can also follow us on LinkedIn where we, we post about the episodes quite a bit and have some commentary there. But a shout out to you as the listeners. We really appreciate you guys. Also want to make sure that we thank our production crew. So big shout out to Will Richardson, who's just been dialing it up all season for us, uh, helping edit, cut, put the show together so that you guys can enjoy it as listeners. Megan Rojas as well has been a huge help just in promoting, helping us on the content side. And both Megan and Will are going to be with us into season two. We're excited to be working with them. Jay, that's all I got. Anything else from you? That's great. Thanks so much, Tim.
We're excited to see you all in season two. Thanks, Jay.